Is learning and development something you're born with or something that you grow to love as you go throughout your career? Today on this episode of Higher Learning, I speak with Jeremy McClellan. He is the head of learning and development for EMEA for Alvarez and Marcel, one of the biggest and fastest growing services company in the world. Jeremy and I talk about a range of topics from everything he does from a technology perspective to how learning and development is an investment for your organization to how, how to hire people that are going to fit you and your high growth team. Jeremy is a wonderful orator and has so much to offer. I can't wait for you all to listen to this episode and tell me what you think. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, my friends, we have a very special guest. Today we have on Jeremy McClellan. Jeremy is the head of learning and development for EMEA for Marcel and Alvarez. Alvarez and Marcel, sorry. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm very good, Oz. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on. I want to start here because I know that you work for a very large global organization. I want to get our listeners a little bit more in tune with where you work, what you're doing, because we're going to dive a lot into that. So tell us a little bit about Alvarez and Marcel and, and why you joined the organization. So yeah, um, Alvarez and Marcel, and m as we like to call it, we, um, they are a rapidly growing um, global kind of professional services firm. Um, which actually started as just a, a sort of a, a boutique turnaround uh, firm, actually in the uh, sort of mid to late 80s with our, our two founding fathers, which is Brian Marcel and Tony Alvarez, um, who are still with us, actually. They're, they're still, you know, leading the firm, and, and that's fantastic. So it's, it's almost still a family affair, but, you know, grown massively over those over those last uh, few years and, and now, you know, offer services across the, the whole professional um sort of the, the professional services spectrum, you know, everything from corporate turnarounds to uh, performance improvement. Uh, we work a lot in the private equity space on the, the buy and sell side. Uh, we do a lot of um, advisory work on sort of mergers, M&As, um, and just, yeah, gen general advisory on tactical. We, we have a, quite a number of service offerings that we, that we do. Um, and now we've grown to Gosh, just under 9,000 globally. We're in six continents. Uh, we are about 37 countries, something along those lines. So it's, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun with them. That's amazing. And one of the things that, that you know, our company here, uh, my company, MSH, we have a talent consulting business, a technology consulting business in the professional services space, a little bit different than, than what you're doing. But what I have always been fascinated about is that at the end of the day, people are our product, right? Our people, our advisory, what we're doing. And so in that vein, learning and development is more important, I think, in this industry than anything else, because you people are companies are paying for your expertise, for your consultants expertise. And obviously, things are always changing and evolving. And if you're giving advice from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was pertinent, then um, you're going to fall behind and you're not going to be a very, very growing, uh, fast growing firm. So the fact that you lead learning and development for such a big organization, I want to understand, how did you get into this space? Was this something that, you know, as a kid, you were, uh, you know, bringing kids into your classroom and showing them what to do? Or is this something that you kind of organically fell into later on in life? I think if you asked any learning and development um, professional that question, I think pretty much I'd, I'd put my head on the chopping block to say 95% of them will probably say they fell into it. <laughs> um, you know, it's not, it's not one of those things you sort of like, you know, you're in the classroom when you're a kid and it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I want to be a head of learning and development. Like it doesn't tend to, doesn't tend to kind of happen that way. Um, so yeah, like most, I, t I tended to fall into it. Um, I, um, I finished my university uh, career back home in South Africa uh, from, I uh, was there for sort of well, up until uni days, finished uni and then moved over to, to London. I had some friends who were in London. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, you know, as a student, I came over, I was going to 
do random jobs and, and tour tour Europe and, and you know go home after a year as after sort of my gap year and 16 years later I'm still sort of on that gap year. Um, but effectively what happened was I started working for a, a lender. Um, a friend of mine I bumped into got me a got me a job at a lender in London. Um, so I started working at a um, at that company and was there for a number of years and we went through a, a bit of a regulatory change at one point and um, they were getting quite hot on, on regulations and we'd just recently been bought out. So it was a coincidence. Um, and uh, the, the, the CEO of the new company that bought us out was a, an American guy and, and he came over and became a mentor of mine and said, look, you know, we need to, uh, we don't have learning and development at this firm and, and we need to have it and we need to retrain all of our sales reps on how to write loans because we weren't doing them properly and the regulator wants us to do it that way. And, reps you know have your you have the reps here in the field how, how would you like to kind of start that and that that you know that function and uh and so that's what i did like you know under his kind of guidance and mentorship and they invested a lot in me there and that was fantastic and spent a few years there and and then grew my career from there and, and moved a number of times and 13 years later that's kind of where i am now yeah that's, that's super interesting and, and listen for somebody that's leading it for such a large organization that has so much work across so many different global entities I got to imagine you have core principles. I'd, I'd like to understand in terms of building a learning and development function, what are the core principles or what are the core principles of an organization that has a thriving learning and development function and organization? Yeah, I think there are, you could probably list quite a number of them. Um, you know, if you sort of did a Google on what are some of the core principles, I think you could find quite a few. But I think for me, there's there's really kind of six main ones that I've found in my sort of travels that, that are really, really important. And um, the first one is kind of a no-brainer, which is really kind of your alignment to your business goals, I think, is super important. Um, and sometimes it's it's a little harder to do than, than it is, you know, to, to say it. But, you know, you, you really need to kind of double down onto when you are developing your employees and their development, is the development that you're doing for those employees directly contributing to the success of that business? And so I think, number one, it's kind of really aligning what you're doing and developing your individual's to the goals of the organization. Number two, I think, is, um, re is regularly assess the skills and the gaps within um, your business. So like you mentioned earlier, if you're, you know, if you're advising on something that's 10 years old, well, then you're not doing a really good job. So you've also got to be regularly assessing whether the skills you have in your organization are up to date and whether the individuals that are, um, that are working with you have the, the best tools necessary to be successful as well. So I'd say that's number two. Um, Number three is is probably one of the most important in my eyes really is kind of leadership support. So it's, you know, when your leaders actively endorse and participate uh, in the programs that you are creating, in the courses that you're doing, in the development of your people as well, um, it sends a hugely powerful message. And I think that creates a general um, really good learning culture within, within any organization, right? Um, number four, I think, is measurement and evaluation kind of speaks for itself, um, you know, making sure that you are putting in place some good measurements and evaluating constantly to make sure that what you're doing is good. Um, we work on a really simple basis, and I think it's it's an interesting one, this, because in the L&D space, return on investment evaluation is, is one of the things that's probably hotly debated. It's very difficult, I think, sometimes to... Uh, really figure out whether what you've done has made that step change in whatever you were looking to do in terms of behavioral change or um, success of a program, et cetera, because there's so many factors that can contribute um, whether, um, you know, what, what you're doing was a success. I mean, yes, it's a piece of the puzzle for sure, but, but how much of that puzzle is it, right? You know, it might be, was it this program or was it that an individual just, 
you know, worked on a really good project all of a sudden and learned loads on the project or, you know, all of a sudden had a really good mentor and therefore, you know, helped them through. So there's always this kind of debate as to kind of return on investment and, and measurement. But I think for us, what I found is is quite effective is, is very simply the kind of the review system. You know, would you recommend this to one of your peers? And I think if the answer is yes, then you're on you're on a good track because, you know, somebody who is going to be doing a similar role to you, um, if they say it's good and it's helping them, then they're going to recommend it to someone else. And if it's not good, they're not going to. So that's kind of a good, um, at that self-review, you know, that we've, we've, we've started to see across, you know, all sorts of, of, of different arenas. Um, so I think that's, that's a good place to start. Number five for me is, is around collaboration. You know, do you have enough, um, sort of collaboration or, or, or ways to collaborate and, and knowledge share? So, you know, do you have good mentorship programs or a mentorship culture? It doesn't have to be a formal program, but do you have people that are willing to guide and coach people through and share their IP and to, to those, to those junior people? Um, do you have a, a, a sort of a, a culture of peer learning? Are you getting people, subject matter experts involved in delivering that training for you? Um, are they willing to do it? Do they see it as, you know, part of their role or just part of their contribution to the firm? I think is 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 key, um, and various different ways of leveraging, um, you know, leveraging best practice from from various people. And I think lastly, it's around technology. Number six, are you leveraging technology the right way um, to be able to um, enhance the learning? So technology is not going to be everything, but are you utilizing tech in the right way to enhance the learning? I think if you can kind of wrap those six things up quite well, you should be on a on a good track for um, for good L and D. Well, fantastic insights. My listeners are a bunch of learners. I know anybody in the L&D or HR space is probably taking down some furious notes. I want to make sure I recap it because I think that was some brilliant insights. Alignment to your business goals, right? Advising and keeping your skills current, leadership support, measurements, right? And, and, and making sure that you're evaluating it, collaboration, and then technology enablement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's great stuff. Now, I'm just a little bit curious. I'm sitting here in the United States. We do work globally ourselves, Latin America, Europe, Asia, uh, across the board. Um, you obviously run EMEA for the company in terms of learning development. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you have a counterpart who's doing North America, Latin America. And listen, we don't want to generalize or stereotype. But are there differences culturally, nuances, or things that you do to apply things differently to get better efficacy you know, maybe from the Western Hemisphere over to the to the Eastern Hemisphere, or even country to country within such a large, you know, diverse group of countries that, that you support. Is there anything that you notice that, you know, culture to culture transcends in learning development or maybe best practices that work one place, but maybe not as well in another? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the cultural nuances definitely come into play. I think um, in I think in. In terms of sort of Western, if you're looking at sort of the, the um, over in North America versus what we're doing over here, I think the way we're set up certainly in A&M at the moment is slightly different. They're more kind of a decentralized model over in, in America. We're, we're sort of more of a centralized model. So, so we centralize most of our, our programs um, across business unit, across country here. Um, in the U.S., they tend to, to do it more kind of within their um Within their business units, so they specialize in those sorts of things. But I think generally the um, the, the, the sort of the philosophy is is the same, and, and I, I suppose in a way um, it's more a case of um, the the way that we learn is is exactly the same, you know. And if you can try and make it as experiential as possible for me, um, then generally that's how you're you're going to get the best out of it. So are you putting people in situations whereby 
it's as, as real as possible to what they're going to be doing day to day. And if so, then they'll 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 pick it up as best as possible. And then there there are always those cult there will be cultural kind of nuances wherever you go. We do a lot of work in the Middle East as well, like from an Emir perspective, and, and we always have to be conscious about those sorts of things and, and tend to in Europe too, you know, um there's 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 a few cultural differences there. So it's 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 an interesting challenge across the board. Love that. So as somebody who has failed many times and had some success in building high-performing teams. I know how tough it is, especially in high-growth organizations. You're currently going through this right now. I'm just wondering, what are you learning? What's the experience like? Maybe somebody else is going through that. Maybe they can, we can give them some empathy and show them, hey, this is, you're not alone. Talk, talk to me what you're learning and what, what's kind of going on currently as you go through this. Yeah, the, I, I've read. You know, I, I think this role that I have had with with A and M has has been, you know, one of the greatest that I've I've done in terms of building building a high performing team. And um, you know, I started uh, four years ago, and and it was just myself coming in. There was one one lady on maternity leave at the time, and and they'd never taken a, a sort of a general strategic view on L and D, and that's why they sort of brought me in to look at that. And, and you know, started with myself, let's say, and four years later, there's eleven of us now. And um, you know, it's it's uh, it's been a great it's been a great journey. Um, I think generally what I'm finding though in this role is um, is is the first thing really is is super clear communication. I think is is one of the key factors in kind of building that. Um, you know, it's it probably goes without saying. It, it's it's probably something that sounds so simple, but it, it really is. It's kind of making you know being crystal clear on what the goals and what we want to achieve, and making sure that everybody within the team knows exactly what they're doing and how it's contributing to that to that goal. So every cog in the wheel knows that what they're doing. Is is you know is useful and valuable in moving us towards you know the, the goal that, that we're trying to we're trying to achieve. And it, it reminds me of that that great story. Um, I think it was uh, back in the '60s when JFK was visiting NASA and asked that you know that janitor with a mop you know what he was doing, and he turned around and and, and said, uh, "I'm helping put a man on the moon, Mr. President." So you know it's sort of like every cog has a, a job to do, and that job is all is all moving in the same direction. I think that for me is has been a, a key lesson kind of when when doing this. Um, another one really is is around um, empowerment. I think has been has been huge for me in this particular this particular role. Um, and I, and probably up until recently, I sort of felt that you know leadership is around you know being the person who's all knowing, and you need to have you know the experience and done it before, and and have inputs everywhere, and um, be involved in every decision, etc. But actually, what I'm learning more is is it's 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 better to kind of lead from the back. And I think that's how I'm sort of describing my style now is is leading from the back. Which is effectively just giving guidance, um, whilst being that kind of support net below your team to give them the support whenever they need them, whenever they put their hand up, you're there. Um, but giving them the space, um, you know, you hire good people and then giving them the space to, to do what it is that they do well. Um, give them the opportunity to make those decisions, to make those mistakes, but then, you know, lean forward and fall forward, fail forward, as they say. Um, and I think that has been a huge shift for me. I'd say over the last, you know, couple of years, um, even though that sounds, um, you know, pretty standard, but I think to actually experience it and kind of when you're going through it and doing it yourself is quite, is quite enlightening. I love that. I love the JFK quote. We got crossover historical references here. I feel a lot of pressure now. I got to come <laughs> up with a Winston Churchill quote at some point. I'll figure yeah. out how I can integrate it organically. We'll see what I can do. Let's talk a little bit about culture. It's an area we are both passionate about. Something I've constantly been thinking about over the last 13 years. It keeps me up at night. I think about it as we go forward. How do you scale culture? What do you do intentionally to ensure what you have now maintains its specialness as you are in a high growth organization? Because it's it's something you have to think about and be intentional about. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree. And it's such a difficult one sometimes, isn't it? Um, and I think my person, what I've come to realize, I think my personal philosophy on kind of, you know, how I want to build teams and, and kind of lead lead teams is, is, um, is sort of starting, what I sort of say, is sort of start from a benchmark of care or start from the point of care. Um, so if whatever decisions you're making comes from a position of care, then I generally think that even if you don't know the right answers to things or you're not necessarily sure exactly what the right course of action is, if you start from a position of care, generally speaking, it's going to work itself out. Um, and I've seen that kind of with how we've sort of managed certain situations within the team. Um, you know, we've had to kind of exit a few people and, and help people, et cetera. Um, and I think that that's generally what I, you know, what I like as a culture, what I like to, to create. And it, it reminded me of um, your your podcast the other day with um, Tam Davidson when you talked about community. I mean, that was just, you know, that just resonated like wholeheartedly with my thought. I totally agree. And I guess so, you know, the team at the moment, I think we're in a great space culturally. We um, we look after each other, we support each other, we, we work in a high pressure environment. Um, we, we're delivering some great stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes we, we need to support each other and help each other. And, and that's what we do. And I think it's difficult as we grow to, to potentially keep that. Um, because now as we're growing, we naturally have to put some layers in, right? I'm not, I'm not speaking to everybody all the time every day. Um, so intentionally, I try to do that. I think I try to try and make the time to to speak to everybody in the team. Uh, you know, at least um, throughout the week, where we're relative. Whilst we have levels, we're relatively flat still, and it's not a massive team. There's only eleven of us, but you know, you get busy and you get into your day to day. And um, so intentionally, I still try to keep connected with everyone. I think, and that's that's a big that's a big thing. And then also to if if we are you know needing support here and there, then I tend to try and help people get people to help me with that because then by doing so. It's it's showing those values through other people in the team, and they're picking that up too, and therefore, you know, modeling the behaviors that that I'm I'm hoping to to replicate across across the team. Great advice, Jackie. I fucking love this guy. He's referencing old podcasts with with Sam. This is amazing. I love it. You love to see that. Thank you for that. Um, I want to ask you one more thing because I think this is, you know, we talk about this in culture, and we all agree that one bad apple or a couple bad apples can absolutely disrupt the cart, um, and. We talked in our previous conversation a little bit about toxic employees and, you know, there's no hard and fast rule here. In fact, if you're a toxic employee, you're usually not doing it like out with a megaphone. It's usually more insidious than that. How and when you when you identify those things, typically, how do you handle it? Does it depend on the severity of the situation? Do you try to correct it through coaching and guidance? Do you try to give different perspective? Is it immediately a this isn't going to work? We got to let you go. Like, what's your take on on rooting out toxicity in employees? And then whether you take an empathetic approach or where you take a hardline approach or what do you, we all know that you can't have it long term, but I'm just interested when you, when you see it and you identify it, what do you, what have you done to handle that? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, 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 it's difficult. It's challenging, I think, because like you said, it, it's not always kind of out and out, you know, in front of your face. It's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, um, kind of, as you say, behind backs and been insidious and, and that sort of thing. And so um, I think if you, I think what I've learned is that when you start to see red flags, then it's probably worth getting in there early, right? That's going to have, that's generally, I think, the, the right approach to take. I, t I tend to, to want to help people correct, course correct, right? So I'm not sort of a, you know, wham, bam, thank you, bam. Um, you know, we, we want to try and help people course correct. But I think, you know, more often than not, um, you know, if that doesn't work, then it's a case of, 
you know, just going in there and saying, you know, this, this, this isn't working for us. Right. And, 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 you know, I think I always try to look positively generally on people. And I think if there is a, a toxic person within the team, often that is a um, product of the environment perhaps. And even if the environment that you're trying to create is a positive environment for whatever reason, that's not working for that individual. And so actually parting ways tends to sometimes be best for both parties and let them find an, you know, an area that, that best suits, you know, who they are and, and, um, and their personalities, for example. So, um, you know, I think, you know, to kind of summarize that, I suppose it's, it's more a case of, you know, trying to root out the red flags quickly, giving people a chance to kind of course correct where possible. And if that's not working, then part ways for, um, better flourishing of both parties. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I like like we said, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think there's a hard and fast answer. I think every situation is contextual. What I typically, like, listen, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to try intentionally to create a culture and environment that is lifting people up, that is understanding the whole person, that is enabling people to do their work, that is fair and just. Um, and you try to do all those things. And as much as you try to do all those things, it's a lot harder than it sounds and you're never getting it right 100% of the time. Then when you identify the toxicity, Part of it has to be that you have trust and intentionality and that you, 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 as a leader, you're hearing things, you're learning things, you understand the pulse of the people. People are coming to you when they see things, right? That's a big key there because otherwise, if, if it, that's not happening, that's probably a sign of, of, of bigger issues of mistrust. When I've identified it in the past, I really seek to understand initially, right? What's going on here? What is not making you happy? What can we do to, is there something that, that there's like, were you, did you feel like you were passed over for something? I can clarify. Did, was there something that, you know, you think was undeserved? Are you not getting enough pats on the back? Is there something going on at home? What can we talk about to try to get to the root of the issue? That's the first step I'm going to usually take, especially if it's something that's not been sustainable or it seems like it's been a turn, right? Um, and then from there, I say, all right, listen, and once I understand it, or if they're saying, no, everything's fine, everything's great, you know, then I'm going to say, listen, we can't have this going forward. It's just not going to work for our company. If there's something I'm not seeing and you want to bring it to light, I want to try to help fix it. But if this is going to maintain, and I mean that in terms of backhanded com um, comments or or discussing and venting or, or doing different things that we just know aren't lifting others up and aren't allowing people to focus on their work but are more making it about you and what you're upset about, that's going to be not sustainable. That's going to be a hard and fast rule. That's something that we're not going to be able to have. So what I want to do is try to address it. If I can't, listen, like you said, it happens sometimes. Sometimes things are a bad fit. Sometimes things are too far gone. Sometimes there's scar tissue. Sometimes there's things that have happened in previous jobs, relationships, or on your commute to work that I have zero control over that gives you PTSD that doesn't allow you to see things hopefully for how they are or how others might be seeing them. And so I want to nip it in the bud, get to the root of the issue, and try to address it and see if I can, hand, if I can help make things better. But if not, then that's something that's going to be a deal breaker. And I think people understand that. And I would say sometimes in the past, that's been something that I haven't done as well as I wanted to. I want to give the benefit of the doubt like you do. But at the same time, we're trying to build something here. And we know the 80-20 rule, right? You spend 80% of the time with 20% with of the, 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 the open mouths or the, or, the, or the unhappy or the high maintenance or whatever it may be. Um, and, yeah. and, and you want to be understanding, but you also got to root that out and you got to make sure that you can focus, focus, focus and, and, and stick to your vision and purpose. And again, if you're getting it from a lot of different sources, probably a you problem. If you're getting it from one or two sources, then it might just be a fit problem and nobody's wrong for that. Um, so listen, great. I love that conversation. I love that talk. I think that'll be very helpful and beneficial to some people listening. But listen, this is a hiring podcast. We want to talk about what makes people who are great at hiring, great at hiring. And so I know you've done a lot of hiring throughout your career. I want to start here. 
what is a core principle you have when it comes to people that you want to bring into your organization or people that you're hiring for your team? So for me, I think it's, it's, um, it's higher for attitude, not for skill, I think is, um, is generally kind of a, a, a core principle that I, I tend to, to lean in. And, and actually this, this was born out of, um, I used to work for, uh, before A&M, actually, I used to work for um, a global recruiting firm called Hudson. Um, and um, it's now been bought out by a company called um, Morgan Phillips, actually. And um, I started working with them in 2016, I think it was. And they were already talking about this um, when they were looking at actually recruiting internally for themselves. So their recruitment consultants, et cetera. And they were sort of, you know, look, they, they were finding it tough to, to sort of find, um, you know, good talent within within the recruiting space. And, they sort of flipped it on its head and sort of said, well, look, you know, like, why are we hiring? You know, what, we don't need to have, you know, someone who's been an industry recruitment agent. You know, they've gone through all the, all the massive big four organizations or they, you know, started as a, a consultant. They're a management consultant, they're a principal consultant, et cetera. But actually, you know, we just want to hire for, for attitude. We can teach them how to recruit, you know, but do they have the right attitude? Do they, are they charismatic? Can they, you know, build relationships easy? Can, do they have a kind of a... A, a work ethic that's that we're looking for you know um etc cetera, etc cetera. and so yeah like that that kind of made sense really um and um and so much so i think one of the examples that they used was they were looking for a director and we had a marcoms team you know recruiting in the marcom space and um, they were looking for kind of a senior director but you know couldn't find that individual um through the, the normal channels and they actually ended up just hiring an industry marketing executive uh because they could build high performing teams and they had done before. Uh, they had a massive marketing network, which would have come in, in really handy in the recruitment space. Um, you know, they, they knew the ins and outs of marketing, you know, in terms of what they were looking for for candidates, et cetera. And so it just made sense. And they just taught them the kind of methodologies behind recruitment. So I think it's kind of high for attitude and not for skill. Um, I have a number of people in my team who, you know, haven't been in professional services before, one or two have, but generally speaking, a lot of the other team come from various other industries. Um, you know, quite a bit of L&D experience, of course, but but generally, you know, they are, are they the right fit? Are they culturally the right fit? Um, do they have the right attitude? Are they, you know, do they buy into the mission, et cetera? And, and, and we can help develop them. And I think in, in a lot of cases, that's great, especially while building a team, because we're also now building career pathways within our team. So if you start at the bottom, you know, you have a number of steps that you can now climb you know, and, and we can retain that talent within within our team as well. So, yeah, for me, it's, it's around attitude and, and not skill, and we can we can teach you that. Yeah, very on brand for a learning and development guy to to believe uh, attitude. You can teach aptitude. I will tell you, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, one of the things that's kind of been a founding principle for our business, and we learned this pretty early on, was, um, you know, we had a hard time hiring people in our industry because our approach is very different. The way we manage our customers and candidates is very different. Um, I like to think our results and outcomes are very different in a very positive way. And so what we found is when we brought in people from in industry, we had to break them down to build them back up. So many of them were used to got to make 100 calls, got to throw 20 things here, got to throw 10 resumes up. And that is not how we work here. We are data obsessed, but it doesn't it's not the point. It's not what we're looking to do. The outcome, the experience for the customers, the experience for the candidates, the great fit that stays there multiple years and gets promoted many times is not based on data. That's based on understanding. That's based on empathy. That's based on business acumen. That's based on a lot of different things. And so we did that for a long time. And we grew this incredibly amazing organic team that was built in the MSH image. 
But over time, also what I learned was is that as we wanted to bring in a new CFO and bring in a new CTO and bring in more management experience, you started to augment some of that organic growth um, with the same behavioral profile and attitude, but also bringing in outside experience to help our company go to the next level. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think it's the right thing to do, especially when you have a premier ability to develop people and, 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 and give them the learnings they need to get the skills they need to be uh, great in their work. Um, do you have, when I ask you about a memorable interview, does anything come to mind? Is any, any maybe you were interviewing or maybe you were interviewing somebody else? <laughs> do you know, one, one does come to mind. It's more case when I was interviewing. And funny enough, this was actually with the same recruitment company back in 2016. And the head of, um, the head of HR at the time um, asked me to, as part of my kind of hiring process, asked me to kind of deliver a short little session for them, particularly around the topic on kind of management, build management. And, and I thought, okay, you know, this is kind of vanilla, but, you know, let, let me see if I can kind of go big here and make a bit of a, make a bit of a, a splash. And, and there was a, um, it was a really funny exercise that an old boss of mine used to run, um, which was on positive versus negative reinforcement in terms of how you kind of motivate people, just day-to-day -day tasks, et cetera. And uh, the way that the exercise is usually run is in a classroom, you know, you maybe have about 10 people in it. It's quite a big space because you need a bit of space to do it. You send two people out in the room. One of them is they're both you're going to be new starters in this business and you close the door. They don't know what's going to happen. And then you get two volunteers to come up, one to be a manager for positive, one to be a manager for negative reinforcement. And you tell the the, the negative reinforcing uh, manager, you roll up an, uh, um, an, a, an A3 page from your flip chart, turn it into a bit of a baton as it were. You probably couldn't do this these days. Um, and then you say, right, you, you can't talk to this individual, but you have a task for them to do. And the task might be something like moving a jug on the table or picking up a pen or something like that. But you can't tell them what that is, but you just have to negatively reinforce them until they do the task. The guy comes in and you don't give them anything and you say, look, this, this person's got a task for you. Um, they can't speak to you and they're going to get you to do it. And that's all you give them. And they start hitting them with this um, <laughs> with this, this piece of paper. And um, inevitably what happens is, is that nothing really happens. They, they run away. People run away from pain. So they run away from it and they're hard on the tables and, and they never get it done. On the flip side, the positive reinforcing person comes in, you say the same thing, only this time you clap every time the individual kind of moves even slightly towards where you want them to do things. And you'll find over, over time it might be more difficult and it's awkward at first because the person's like, what do I need to do? And then you can't speak and they don't move. The minute they start moving one way, you clap, they tend to get it. Ah, right, okay. And then they move a little bit more and then they clap and you get further, further. And more often than not, it happens and they kind of do the task. And then the whole thing is around positive better than negative, for example. So I wanted to run this as part of my interview with um, the uh, the head of HR. And, I, and when I got them, this is probably a, um, a lesson in prep. It was a tiny meeting room. There were like three ladies in there. I was like, there's no ways I can get someone to whack a lady in this interview. And um, <laughs> anyway, it turned out that what I thought was going to be a disaster actually turned out to be to, to work out quite well and they, they ended up kind of having a big chuckle about it but um i got the role in the end which you know tended to to show that it, it potentially worked and uh so yeah from a memorable interview that's probably one that sticks out the most to be honest yeah when you're interviewing people do you have a, a favorite question you like to ask yeah i think it's a, it's it's kind of a standard question but i like the answers that it tend you tend to give i i generally like to ask people what their motivations are for kind of leaving any previous roles and i know that that's kind of a standard question in the kind of questionnaire as it were but i'm always interested to find out how people answer that whether they answer it honestly or not 
Um, and I feel like you do get that insight from your TA team usually in kind of a screening point of view. But I like to re-ask it just to see A, is it aligned? Uh, and B, you know, you, you, you like to look for the whites in their eyes of, of those kind of those kind of questions, right? And generally it's 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 around, you know, firstly, like, you know, to see the sort of the honesty that you might get out of that individual, which is great. But secondly, also around, you know, what are the things that if this if this person becomes successful, you know, what are the what are the motivations that they're looking for? What what pitfalls do I need to look out for, right? And 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 uh, and what we have, and, ma and maybe we are doing things slightly differently, and that might not be a good fit for them. Um, and and so yeah, so that that tends to be one of the the, the questions that I quite enjoy asking and getting the answers to. I think that's I think that's really on point. I think you're going to learn a lot about somebody, and it's not very direct way, but you can find out about what matters to them, what they what they what they've been through. So what you might get in terms of that PTSD I was talking about, good or bad. Um, and and just understanding what matters to somebody. Maybe they're very principled, right? Um, I had somebody that um, we interviewed that was working at uh, Meta, and obviously there was a lot of controversy with that, you know, three or four years ago. Um, and they were in a meeting at one point, and they were like, "I can't do this anymore." And they just got up and left. And like, like not everybody did that, but that person was very principled and had a very strong opinion and bias towards that. And so they left and went to another company. Um, and so I just found that to be very interesting motivation, not right or wrong, just interesting in that they took that much of a stand on something that they cared about. They showed me the person was very mission driven in their work, very purpose driven. Yeah, yeah. So I, I find that that that's a really great question. And I would have to give a credit to Hudson. He worked in the recruiting space before you got into L&D. I would tell anybody that wants to be great at interviewing, get in the recruiting space and understand it before you move on to your executive level career. And then you'll build these high performing teams like my man, Jeremy over here. Um, next question is when it comes to helping people understand about Alvarez and Marcel, creating a candidate experience that gives them a realistic job preview, anything that you do or anything that you say in the meetings to make people understand what they're walking into if they take a job with you? Um, so I think, well, I think, I think generally, um, we're, we're, we're quite honest in terms of, um, you know, what, yeah, in terms of how like A&M works, I think, you know, it's a, it's a high performance environment. Um, you know, we, we have to work at pace. Um, we have to, um, we have, you know, sometimes we have difficult stakeholders or stakeholders that, you know, they, they demand a certain level of, of quality. And, and, uh, and so, you know, we have to, we have to kind of manage those. And I think, you know, I think we're, we're always super honest about that. Um, and, um, and generally speaking, I think the way that I try to make them more comfortable in kind of those interviews is, is really kind of giving them more of an insight into what they're going to be joining from a team perspective. Because I think, you know, the, the work could be hard, but, you know, as long as you have kind of a good and supportive team around you and you're, you enjoy working with your colleagues, you know, enjoy what you do and enjoy um, who you do it with is kind of the mantra at A&M. Um, you know, then, then I think you're, you're kind of 90% of the way there and, and, um, in, in, in having someone kind of enjoy what they're doing with you. So I think, you know, generally what we do is we, I like to get them to meet a number of people within the team. So, you know, maybe if it's a three stage and they're meeting one or two people at each stage, so they get a good kind of overview of that. Um, if you are doing the interviews, you know, like this over, over, um, teams or uh, zoom, then, you know, maybe the second round, they should, they should come to the office, give them the experience. We have these amazing offices down in Morgate, Liverpool Street in London. Um, you know, come in, meet the, the smiling receptionist, get some good coffee. Um, you know, sometimes if the interview's gone well, we tend to take them on a quick little tour around the business, around, around the office. So they, they get a real feel for, you know, what it is that they're going to be, um, you know, where they're going to be working and who they're going to be working with. And, and uh, I feel like we, we, we tend to do a good job of that. Travel tip, just because you reminded me about it. Liverpool, one of the most underrated cities I've ever been to. Had time of my life there. Got to see 
my uh, my soccer team at Anfield, so that was exciting. But also, great nightlife, great city overall. So big, big fan of Liverpool. Big, um, big, big Beatles as well. Big Beatles area, isn't it? I actually, yeah. that's why I chose the, uh, you know, when you're an American and you start to, you know, like football and, and uh, or soccer, um, I guess for my American listeners, and you want to pick a team, you know, I wanted something a little bit, and this is back in like 2014, I wanted something a little iconoclast. I wanted where I'm a big rock and roll guy, so you know, the Stones and Beatles and, and all these different bands coming out of those areas. Um, and I just kind of liked, you know, I like the history of the team. So I, I chose it and I've been into it and it was a good choice. And uh, I got to go there and I got to experience it. And I, it was a great, great time. It was very cold. Um, as you can imagine, I went like in late November, um, but great city. Had, had I went to Manchester too. So I, very cool to, because I've been to London a few different times, but to go see the rest of England and experience yeah. the rest of the country. Um, I think from a lot of people, especially here in the States, they don't get to go explore the North and, and see what's up there. Lots of cool yeah. stuff going on in those cities. Um, Absolutely. What a, what, what a sidebar. What a tangent there. Last question. <laughs> in terms of uh, when you are interviewing, are, is there any type of technology you use that helps you kind of keep notes? Are you writing notes? Are you using Excel, Airtable? How do you kind of document or track what you're doing from a uh, hiring perspective technology-wise? Um, so we're, I mean, we're, we're pretty old school at the, uh, at the moment. So we tend to just um, just write our notes as we go in terms of the interviews that we're doing. Um, but our, we've got a pretty slick TA team, um, so they um, they use a you know an um, applicant tracking system, so so an ATS. Uh, I, I can't I couldn't tell you what, which one they use to be honest, but don't you know worry they, about it. we don't we don't want to prop up anybody else. You're good. They use an ATS. <laughs> we're good with that. Yeah, so they they do they do a pretty decent job at kind of doing the tracking for us, and um, then we just input our notes straight into that system. It gets recorded, um, and uh, yeah, and then they. Okay, they I'm gonna do. throw an absolute curveball at you here. If there was something technology-wise that could improve the interviewing experience for you, for the candidate, that you as a hiring manager would use, anything that come to mind? Oh, man, that is a curveball. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything right now. That's okay. Um, Maybe, uh, it's, 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 it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of just... Uh, it's sort of just voice transcript, uh, artificial intelligence for bias yeah, mitigation, uh, question generation, like all those things. Yeah, that's 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 a good one actually. I mean, I to be honest, I've never I've never thought about that. But yeah, I think voice voice transcripts would be great because you're always you know short short handwriting or short writing notes and that sort of thing. And there's always something that you you pick up later. I tend to reflect as well at times, so that actually probably would be a good thing to kind of go back on the transcript and be like, oh yeah, that's it. That that's actually a good point, or you know something like that. So yeah, that's a good point. That'd probably be quite handy. Someone should build that. We'll see. All right, let's. I want to dive in a little bit about your career, man. So let's talk about. I usually ask a day in the life, but I find for executives is meeting after meeting after meeting. When you've had a productive day, what happened that day typically? So when I've had a productive day, well, look, I mean, my, my day is, it can be a number of different things, um, which is what I like about it. So I think, you know, for me, I think if it's a productive day, it's generally have gone through the multitude of projects that we've got on at the moment and have we kind of moved those projects, you know, forward considerably. So whether that's, you know, having created some content for that project or, you know, had a really good meeting with a subject matter experts who's buying in, or, you know, we had a, um, you know, we've, we've, we've almost, we've almost, well, we've launched, you know, we've launched a great program or something like that is, is usually um, a really, really, really good day. Um, a lot of what I do as well is, is if I can sit down and get some space for, you know, some strategic thinking, I think that's always a good day as well. Um, I tend to, you know, Try and carve out where possible some time to think about the team. You know, what am I doing with them? Um, how can I make things better? How can I incentivize better? How can I be a, be a better leader? 
how do I structure the team such that we retain the talent, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, if I've managed to carve out that time, that's also a productive day uh, for me as well. So I, I also do, we, we run on the sort of player coach model here at A&M as well, because we, we get into the thick of things. So whilst I do lead the team, I also have a client group that I business partner with as well. So, you know, if I've um, been able to, uh, you know, build, you know, pull together some really good training, you know, training plans, or I've helped an individual with uh, um, something that they've, that they've had, maybe help them with a coach or doing, done some coaching or, um, you know, push them in the right direction to help develop that individual, you know, things like that are always big wins for me too. So. Are you, is there anything you're working on right now you're particularly juiced about, you're excited about? Yeah, we, um, you know, we've, we've been putting some really good foundations in um, over this last year and next year is going to be kind of a big, uh, a big year from us in terms of actually pushing um, a lot of the programs that we've been building foundationally this year. So what we've moved towards for the first time uh, within ANMEA is um, we've built academies. So we have academy per grade. So everywhere from analysts through to our senior director and managing directors. Um, and so we built these sort of like two day boot camps per grade, um, four business skills, what you need to do to be a great consultant at A&M from an analyst all the way through to senior director. Uh, we've built all but one of those. Um, we've run pilots for all of them. And now it's the case of we've put them into circulation. Our new financial year starts this month. So we're on a, a big promotional spree in terms of actually driving that agenda across the business, um, putting that in the calendar and just, just getting people excited about it and, and having, having it as part of our kind of ongoing development for, uh, for all of our people across EMEA and across, um, yeah, all of our, our various um, offices across Europe and EMEA and, and the Middle East. You're going to have to keep me updated on that. It sounds exciting. All right, last question. If you had one bit of advice to give maybe yourself when you were 20 years old getting started in your career or maybe for our early and career listeners, that you didn't know then, but you know now, what would it be? I think um, one of the things that, uh, as I moved through my career, I found, and this is this is mainly from kind of a, I suppose, improving your yourself and also kind of just monetarily mainly is um, you you tend to have big jumps in in sort of your salary and in terms of your career when you move. Um, you know, it's great to be somewhere for a number of years. Don't get me wrong, but actually, if you start to move and get more experience around you also get also step jumped in kind of your own kind of salaries, right? So, um, you know, at first I, I stuck with an organization for a long, long time. Um, and then within five years, I moved sort of three, three times or something like that. And, 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 you know, jumped considerably in terms of what I learned, um, what I experienced and also kind of what I earned. And I think if someone told me that kind of a lot earlier, I might've done that a bit sooner. Um, but I think part of that as well is also around delayed gratification, I think is, is something that my dad always spoke to me about, funnily enough, um, which I didn't quite understand until probably recently, is in, in terms of it's, it's quite easy to get caught up in wanting everything now in the world that we live in, you know, lines of credit and getting things now and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, if we just sort of step back and, and had sort of delayed gratification and things, um, we would, we would, I suppose we would, you know, cherish things a lot, a, a lot better as well and not, and, and not have as much pressure on ourselves as well. Um, you know, for example, you know, it's hard to buy a house in London at the moment. You know, a lot of young people can't buy houses. And so I, I bought my first house at 37, right? So, you know, a lot of people were buying them at kind of mid-20s and, and you're thinking, oh, I'm falling behind that something. Sort of but actually now in the grand scheme of things, life marathon, it doesn't matter, you know, so to really kind of, you know, don't worry, you, you know, stay the course, trust the process. Um, have delayed gratification, and, and uh, I think you'll be you'll be happier. Than I. That's really good advice. I appreciate you spending some time with us, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on. 
I'm really excited for this episode to come out and uh, I look forward to staying in contact. Thanks again, buddy. Oh, thank you very much. Great, great, uh, great to be here. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.